Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. This week on Talk Nation Radio, will Trump attack Iran? Will Joe Biden attack Iran? Our guest is Michael T. Clare, who is the nation's defense, their word, correspondent and Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College and Senior Visiting Fellow at the Arms Control Association in Washington, D.C. Most recently, he is the author of All Hell Breaking Loose, The Pentagon's Perspective on Climate Change, and his latest article, which we will be discussing from The Nation magazine, A Very Trumpian Christmas Surprise, Signs Point to a Possible U.S. Attack on Iran. Michael Clare, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Pleasure to be with you. Thanks for coming on. You you start your article with something I think not everybody is aware of, and that is uh, reports that, that Trump actually really wanted to attack Iran at some point in the past, right? Well, I think he wanted to do this multiple times in the past. I, I, I think there, there have been a number of occasions where he came close to ordering attacks on Iran and pulled back at the last minute. So this would not be the first time. But we, we do know that on November 12th, he had a session at the White House with his top advisors, including Vice President Mike Pence and the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, in which he, he said, uh, give me a list of options. I want to attack Iran. Um, and they talked him out of it at that moment. But he never said, oh, oh I'm never going to attack Iran. He, he, he just was talked out of it for that moment. And I believe that the plans are still there if he gives them a green light to go ahead. Why does he want to attack Iran, uh, do you think? And, and why do those particular uh, non-members of the peace movement not want him to attack Iran? Those are two, two questions that deserve some time to, to answer. There's never a single answer for why the U.S. would attack another country. There are usually multiple answers. I, I think that Trump came into office with a history of despising the Iranians, uh, that it's a Muslim country, and he came in with a history of Islamophobia and hostility towards Muslims in general. Iran uh, has also been a threat to Israel, America's ally, and the uh, Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, has had very close ties to the Trump administration and has constantly put pressure on the White House to attack Iran to eliminate what they saw as a Iranian nuclear weapons threat. So there are also domestic forces in the U.S. who are pro-Israeli and support Netanyahu's claims about the Iranian threat and, and put pressure on Trump. Many of his biggest donors have put pressure on him. So it's a combination of factors, I think, that led him to contemplate such attacks. Now, why was he talked out of it? Because, among other things, Trump has promised to bring American troops back from Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria before the end of his tenure, at this tenure, uh, that is, the, his first uh, and presumably only 
tenure as president of the United States, ending on January 20th. And this is a very delicate move to extract troops from battle zones. And the Iranians have a capacity to disrupt that uh, because they, you know, they're in the region. There are pro-Iranian militias in Iraq that could disrupt uh, a withdrawal of U.S. forces, and, and the Iranians could disrupt withdrawal of U.S. forces from Afghanistan if the U.S., that is to say, in retaliation for any U.S. attacks on Iran. And I, I think that the Mike Pompeo and and Trump's military advisors told him that if he attacked Iran at this point, uh, that could mess up his pl- uh, Trump's plans to withdraw forces from Iraq and Afghanistan by the end of his term on January 20th. At the same time, the the military, as far as I could tell, is resisting withdrawing those forces and even openly bragging about having tricked Trump uh, regarding how many forces were coming out of Syria so that he would think he was withdrawing more troops than he was. Uh, And the United States Congress in the latest military bill is uh, rather (laughs) disturbingly forbidding withdrawing troops from Afghanistan. So it's, it's not clear he's uh, he's getting that anyway, is he? Well, he has the power to, you know, order these withdrawals, and the military is playing something of a shell game, as you say, uh, claiming that troops are being withdrawn when uh, they're not all being withdrawn. There will there will still be U.S. troops in Iraq, Syria, and Afghanistan when uh, Donald Trump leaves the White House on January twentieth. So, yes, you're, you're, you're right. There is resistance to their withdrawal from the, from the region by the military and by both Democrats and Republicans in Congress. It's yeah, it's 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 hard to know whether he has the power to withdraw troops when Congress forbids it. I, I mean, isn't this a relatively new thing? I mean, Congress has always let presidents start wars, but for Congress to be forbidding the ending of wars by denying huh. the withdrawal of troops, even from Germany and Korea, for goodness sakes! But it, it isn't isn't this a relatively new and relatively disturbing approach for Congress? to take at the same time that they finally tried to end a war in Yemen? Uh, that, that is an interesting observation, David. I, I don't know if there's a history for this, but I, I suspect there probably have been prior circumstances. The Congress can't forbid a military move. What it can do is, is uh, use the power of the purse to say you, you can't use uh, federal funds to do something. That's that's the way they would exercise their power. Uh, so the the uh, National Defense uh, Authorization Act, the NDAA, NDAA, which is now sitting on the president's desk, he may veto it. Uh, does uh, include provisions that would make it difficult for Trump to withdraw all U.S. forces from those locations, and especially from Germany, from from the NATO areas. Yeah. You you also wrote, Michael Clare, a correspondent for The Nation, you also wrote in your article that Trump might want to 
create pandemonium at home by starting a war uh, in Iran. It seems to me it would be quite unpopular at home. Am I am I deluded? I I, I really I'm hard, I find it hard to predict what the media in the United States would do with that. Whether he would he would become presidential again in their eyes, or whether they would go on calling him a fraud and a liar as they do on non-military issues. So this is, uh, you know, this this is a a scenario that is tied to all the conspiracy theories that are floating around in the media, especially the non-traditional media of the right, of the far right, that uh, Trump may declare martial law or a state of emergency of some sort uh, to resist leaving office. Um, Michael Flynn, his, his former uh, military uh, national security advisor has f- floated the idea that he should declare martial law so there are other other of these kind of notions floating around and and Trump himself has hinted at extreme measures so um i can picture a situation in in which uh, Donald Trump starts a war in Iran that uh, spirals out of control, where U.S. forces come under attack in Iraq or Afghanistan, or that um, Iranian-linked militias like Hezbollah in Lebanon attack Israel, and there's all this chaos, and, and Trump says, well, I can't leave office at a moment like this when there's all this chaos breaking out in the Middle East that he uses it as an excuse to stay in office. I'm not saying this is going to happen. I'm not saying that he has a plan to do this. I'm just saying it's within the realm of possibility, given the um, conspiracy theories and other notions that are floating around, and, and Trump's stated conviction that he won the election and that he's not leaving office. Uh, so a war would fit into that that kind of a scenario if he became desperate enough. No, on the yeah. other hand, um, he the raid he he could claim that um, attacks on Iranian nuclear facilities would um, eliminate Iran from ever becoming a nuclear power, and he would look good. Uh, so he may be tempted to go out of power uh, as a hero, you know, that he eliminated, he did what nobody else had done and that, that Obama didn't do, you know, he'll claim, by eliminating the Iranian bomb. There isn't an Iranian bomb, there isn't any such thing, but, you know, he could pose himself as the great savior. I, I guess no one has ever overestimated the passivity of the U.S. public, but I like to imagine that at least some people wouldn't sit still for that. Um, do, do you do you think that the that the uh, apparently Israeli assassination recently of an Iranian scientist was an attempt to get a war started? And and have there been other uh, actions and maneuvers uh, in the U.S. military that that indicate that that there may be plans for a possible war? Well, now, I don't think that the U.S. military by itself, the military leadership, 
has any desire to start a war in the Middle East uh, because they know the military leadership fully understands that uh, Iran, you know, Iran cannot match the United States in conventional military power. We all know that uh, Iran is a third-rate, fourth-rate power. Uh, it, it has no capacity to resist an American assault. But Iran does have what are called asymmetric means of retaliation. It can uh, blow up ships in the Persian Gulf, sink ships in the Strait of Hormoz, and block the oil trade for some time, creating an economic crisis. It can unleash pro-Iranian militias throughout the Middle East. And the American military knows that this would be an enormous headache for them and, and, and divert them from what they see as the primary threat, which is China and, and the pivot to China. Uh, however, there are forces um, within the U.S. and in Israel uh, that would like to push the U.S. into a war with Iran, and I named one of them, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel, who is very keen to have the U.S. do its do his work for him, uh, which he, which is to destroy Iranian military capacities totally, which Israel is not capable of doing, but he would like the U.S. to do it for him. And so I am hardly alone in suggesting that the assassination of that Iranian scientist, Bozen Fakhrizadeh, hard to pronounce, uh, but uh, that uh, gentleman on November 27th, um, by presumably, it's believed to be by Israeli agents, um, they, nobody has uh, uh, taken responsibility for it, but um, it's widely believed to be Israeli agents, that this was timed at this moment to provoke the Iranians into carrying out some kind of retaliation that would trigger a U.S. military response. Now, the Iranians did say uh, upon his assassination that there would be retaliation and that there would be severe retaliation. So far, that has not occurred. So we are still waiting to see how Iran might respond to the assassination by Israel in Tehran of their top nuclear scientist. And I, 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 as I say, I would not be the only, the first person or the only person to suggest that uh, Israel uh, timed this assassination, which must have been in preparation for months, if not years, uh, at this moment, to, to try to provoke a clash while Donald Trump was still president. Wouldn't, uh, wouldn't an attack, no matter how it was sold and how surgically it was described, on a nuclear energy facility uh, or facilities uh, risk catastrophic 
results and and suffering uh, in the region that would uh, would look different from the from the typical uh, civilian deaths and injuries that are so professionally ignored by the U.S. media. It's very hard to tell, you know, exactly what might be the outcome of such an attack because we don't know what all the targets would include and what kind of, we have to put this in quotation marks, what the collateral damage might be. Uh, Some of the facilities that would be attacked are in very remote locations. Uh, The the, um, nuclear enrichment facility at Natanz, which would be one of the targets, uh, the centrifuge uh, facilities where Iran enriches uranium uh, for possible use. They claim they, they they have no intention to make a bomb, but it's suspicious that they're enriching uranium beyond the level needed for nuclear power plants. So that facility is uh, located uh, away from civilian areas. But if the U.S. Uh, staged an attack on the Tans, uh, for all we know, uh, in all likelihood, they would, uh, the U.S. would also, U.S. forces would also attack other facilities. Uh, my guess is they would attack the Revolutionary Guards headquarters uh, in Tehran, uh, because that's the force that is always named as Iran's threat to the region. I, they conceivably would attack the Defense Ministry headquarters or critical radar and missile bases around the country. We we don't uh, nobody outside the military would know what's on the target list. And so we can't know ahead of time what what collateral damage might be. We can be sure that Iranians would erupt in fury and demand retaliation, and that could take many forms, and many people would be hurt, could be hurt in that retaliation, including American soldiers based in Iraq uh, or in other countries in the region. Yeah. We're speaking with Michael Clare, who writes for The Nation magazine. Currently, uh, people are dying in Iran. Are they not uh, as a consequence of the sanctions? It is uh, very likely that people in Iran are suffering terribly as a result of the sanctions imposed by the Trump administration as part of its maximum pressure campaign to force the government into negotiating a new agreement uh, with Washington, uh, supposedly more stringent than the one that the Obama administration negotiated, which is called the JCPOA, the Joint uh, what is it, the Joint Plan of Action, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, uh, which which um, lays out what Iran had to do in order to re- receive sanctions relief. Uh, yeah. The Trump administration wants Iran to renegotiate that agreement on, with more stringent terms. Although why that was necessary when the agreement was perfectly adequate in preventing Iran from getting nuclear weapons, uh, I find absurd. 
uh, and the sanctions have caused widespread pain, uh, particularly um, it's made it very difficult to uh, supply medicines and medical equipment and medical supplies to Iran um, for cancer treatment, for example. Um, and so it's very likely that people have died or suffered because they weren't able to get access to the medical treatment they need to survive. If if we make it through the end of of the Trump days uh, in Washington D.C., uh, we get a President Joe Biden who had no foreign policy task force, no foreign policy page on his website, has made it a top priority to to bring in uh, nominees with a grand history of warmongering and war profiteering, but who has committed to uh, rejoining that agreement uh, and to ending at least some sanctions uh, on Iran, uh, but may have a limited window in which to operate before the next Iranian elections. Uh, if, if Trump doesn't attack Iran, what is the danger that Joe Biden does so? Uh, it, it's pretty clear that uh, if there's a smooth transition to power on January 20th and Donald Trump hasn't um, been, been able to ignite a war with Iran before then, uh, that you will have an opportunity at that moment to uh, for the U.S. to um, restore talks with the Iranians about rejoining the U.S. rejoining the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, um, and and working out an arrangement of some sort uh, th- that would. Um, you know, a glide path towards restoration of the agreement, the reduction in sanctions, um, and Iran coming back in full uh, compliance with the nuclear deal. So I'm hopeful about that. But uh, it's, it's, it's not going to be easy because many Iranians are furious at the assassination of their top scientists and other other ways in which they've suffered over the past four years under Donald Trump, and they they're going to want to see instant uh, shift in the situation. You know, they're going to want to see an instant re, re, relief from from sanctions and such. They... I don't think that Joe Biden is in a position to deliver that. Uh, Congress is not going to give that to him, so it's it's going to be tough negotiations. But I'm hopeful that progress can be made. To what extent does Biden need Congress? This was this was never a, an actual treaty, or or Trump couldn't have torn it up. Is it the position of of Congress that presidents uh, can tear up treaties, even long-standing disarmament treaties with with Russia? Uh, but but can't create them? <laughs> you know, the opposite of what presidents can do with wars? Uh, you're right that <clears throat> the agreement was signed by the uh, by the Obama administration, and it's not a treaty, it's an agreement. But sanctions, this, a lot of the sanctions were voted by Congress. 
And so sanctions relief would require uh, congressional action. And and what should Congress members be doing uh, now and in January? And what should the public be doing and be telling Congress members to be doing? Well, the first thing is to give Joe Biden, the Biden administration, a chance. Let's see what they can what they can uh, get, uh, what kind of promises they can get from the Iranians, what kind of quid pro quos they could make. And, uh, and Congress then has to be willing to go along with that, with whatever kinds of quid pro quos he could make. Look, the ultimate goal should be a nuclear-free, nuclear weapons-free Iran. I think on that we could all agree uh, that's the optimal achievement. There are other things we'd like to see. Uh, <laughs> like the Iranians like to... with, with jobs and money and food and, and medicine. Uh, how about a death and suffering-free Iran? Uh, uh, well, uh, I mean, in, in the negotiations with Iran, there are, there are other issues that we would like to see resolved. Uh, we would like Iran to be uh, less supportive of militias in Iraq, for example, that are threatening the stability of the government. So there are a range of issues on which to negotiate, um, and, and, and we would like to see Iran alter its behavior, but that's going to require complementary shifts in U.S. behavior. It has to be a quid pro quo. Correct so, me if I'm wrong. Iran was complying with the agreement. The United States was not, and the United States tore it up. Iran didn't violate it until after Trump had left it, right? Yes. So why, uh, they, so why, is, why is the priority for Iran to alter its behavior? And how do members of the U.S. public... I'm sorry, we only have like two minutes left, but do, <laughs> do we really sit on our hands and give Biden a chance, or is there something we should should and can do? Well, let me catch my breath, because you're going to edit this, right? I, I hope not, and not if you do it in a minute and a half. I'm not. <laughs> no. I mean, what, what we, the public, want is uh, n no war with Iran, number one. Number two is uh, promise that any arrangement that... Biden administration is able to make with the Iranians that we will fulfill our part of it, which is to re is sanctions relief. If they fulfill their commitments, then we have to go back to re uh, to eliminating the sanctions on Iran. Um, Thirty seconds left. All sanctions or just certain sanctions? <laughs> There are sanctions that are specifically tied to Iran's nuclear behavior that are tied to the nuclear deal. Right. And they're very specifically laid out in the agreement. So if Iran comes back into full compliance, then it'll be our obligation to come back into full compliance. And the specific sanctions that are tied to the nuclear program would have to be eliminated. 
Well, let's hope for that, work for that, demand it, uh, tell your Congress members to demand it uh, right away. We've been speaking with Michael Clare, who writes for The Nation magazine, and you can find uh, this article there, and we'll have a link at talknationradio.org, and many other great articles by Michael Clare at the same uh, magazine and website. Michael, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. It's my pleasure. These are important issues, and it's good that we give them an airing like this. Thank you. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. Read or listen to today's Peace Almanac entry at peacealmanac.org. All past shows can be heard at talknationradio.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is supported by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.